This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to discuss uh, one of the more difficult um, but important issues uh, in our world today, uh, the rise, or at least the apparent rise, of uh, white supremacy and violence associated with white supremacy in the United States, in New Zealand, uh, in various countries uh, around the world, and uh, what its historical origins are and and how we should think about it today, where it's come from and what we can do about it as uh, democracies that, that hope not to have this kind of violence. Um, we have with us uh, a wonderful guest, uh, Augusta DeLomo. Hi, Augusta. Hi, how are you? I'm well. It's so good to have you on. It's good to be here. Augusta is uh, finishing her PhD at the University of Texas. Uh, do you hear that? I said you're finishing your PhD? Yeah, it's like, I don't know. What is this finishing word that we're discussing? <laughs> uh, she uh, has this done... This actually an intervention. This, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> correct. Correct. Uh, she has done uh, really deep and international research, uh, unique research, on not simply the rise of white supremacy in the period of the civil rights movement in the decades thereafter, but in particular, the connections between uh, white supremacists in the United States, in South Africa, uh, and various other societies. So she's going to be able to give us the kind of background on these issues that that few others can. Uh, But before we turn to Augusta, we have another scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's your poem title today? Torches Burning. Torches Burning. Let's hear it. Sometimes when the heat burns down through the car windows and the news is nothing but those violent memories, I wonder why sometimes the torches have to burn, have to burn through the streets of college campuses, have to burn in the hearth fires of a thousand men, why the guns have to blaze through churches, mosques, synagogues, have to blaze through offices, charity clinics, why the bombs have to come in the mail to television stations, to people's homes and towns and cities across the American page, have to come in the mail amongst our hopes, our dreams, sailing across miles. Sometimes I stare out and wonder why the hatred has to burn so brightly. But when these racists coming for you at dusk shoot you down on the sidewalk shouts and solemn news reporting, when all this seems to flow through every blow of the wind, the only thing I can do is think of all the hope and all the hugs that come to me in my everyday walk through daily life. Block out the hateful, deathly white supremacy. Forget their names, forget their words, forget their everything, and pray, sing to the wind of all the dead, the aching. And when this mournful song is done and has floated out into the depths of my consciousness, move on. Collect the hugs and the hope. Collect the smiles and the sighs, the birds chirping and the misty mornings. Collect these moments, these words, and use them to build tomorrow. Hmm. I love the juxtaposition between the hate and the hugs. What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem was really about uh, like feeling all of the, the sort of like violent outbursts of hate that we've been seeing for a long time. And learning to, 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 to live with that, but also to, to, to cut it out and uh, use that anger at these events to uh, build something productive. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that opens up, I think, the obvious question, Augusta. What is white supremacy? What are we talking about here? Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad that we're starting with this because one of the things that's really hard is actually defining what this movement is. And I want to be very specific in thinking about it as a movement that 
the kind of white nationalism, white power that we see right now is its own specific kind of intellectual and social movement. Mm. Um, And so when we think about white supremacy, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is the sort of KKK boogeyman in the hood, right? Right. Is that we take the most, the common sense, and I'm using air quotes here, the common sense version of white supremacy is actually the most extremist version, Mm. right? The violence that we see now. But white supremacy actually has a much broader definition. And we shouldn't narrow it so much to think about just the sort of violence that we see right now. Um, And so when you think about white supremacy, it includes both self-conscious racism. It includes political systems, economic systems, cultural systems where whites control significant amounts of power. Um, And that it's important to think about not just material resources that white supremacists want to control, but also um, just ideas of entitlement, Mm. right? There's a broader range of behaviors that fall under what we consider white supremacy. But what we're seeing today, especially in New Zealand and Charlottesville, is a more extreme version of white supremacy that we would call white nationalism or white power. The difference is between uh, white supremacy is part of white nationalism. So white nationalism is the belief that there is a sort of ethnic white race uh, and that they have some sort of shared cultural and social history that needs to be recognized and put forward. White power, then, is the militaristic version of white nationalism. And so if you think that sounds very similar to black power, it's intentional. The American Nazi Party leader George Rockwell actually came up with the term white power in response to Stokely Carmichael of the Black Panther Party's black power. So that sort of co-optation is important and thinking about that they see themselves as a social movement too. Um, And so when we're thinking about what we see over the past really since 2016, the increase in violent episodes, that's specifically white nationalism or white power, and it's a more extreme form of white supremacy. So I think it's important to distinguish that while this is a particularly radical and very scary form of white supremacy, it's not the only form of white supremacy, right? That right. there's everyday occurrences that sure. are white supremacy. Sure. Right. But when we're, when we're referring in particular to the violent outbursts yeah. and the more public hateful comments, yeah. who, who, who are these people? Yeah. So one of the things that I really hope that we can talk about a little bit here and what I think a lot of scholars and activists have been pushing back on, this idea that, you know, White power and white nationalists are kind of uh, the boogeyman in the closet, right? right? That they're, you know, disturbed kids and that they're very isolated. The truth is, is they're not as isolated as we would like to so, think. So Dylan are. Roof is not the, so, the so Dylan Roof. So Dylan Roof is a extreme and also typical, but in also many ways he's stereotypical. So one of the things that really sort of set me on this path thinking about white supremacy is you see all of the images of white people protesting um, integration in the 1960s. Right. Where did they go? Right. They didn't just evaporate, right? Like right. we, there's been a lot of really great work of identifying who these people are. They're members of the community. They're, they're bankers. They're lawyers. They're um, city council people. They're farmers, right? So these are everyday people sure, that have course. a particular kind of ideology. What sets white power and white nationalists apart? Um, is actually their particular affinity for using media and using fear to sort of operate in the shadows. And recently, what's actually been a bigger shift is how comfortable they felt in the open. You saw sort of upsurges of white nationalist violence in the 90s, like the Oklahoma City bombings. Um, And it's been relatively less... apparent until the past few years, just how powerful these movements are. Um, 
And so it's important to think about that they're not just, you know, there's there's the stereotype that they're sort of leftovers of the South, right? They're leftovers of segregation. In reality, they're part of a global movement that includes right. everywhere from the United States to New Zealand to Australia to Germany. Um, and there's particular reasons for why they've always been kind of linked together and in conversation. And what is it that links them? Is it, is it simply an, an opposition to racial and ethnic diversity? What is their positive program? Their positive program. What are they? What are they seeking to accomplish? Mm, yeah, is it, is I was it like, sim- positive. Yeah. <laughs> well, positive in the sense yeah. of what is what is it that they're trying to accomplish? Yeah. So they, there's a lot of actually variation in what they want. Um, there's a bunch of different schisming groups that fall under what we would call white power, but generally they want, as you said, right? They want. They want separatism um, for the most part. It's that they want to form a sort of separate space or to solidify the gains that they've already made. Um, particularly if you think about the 1960s, if you think about decolonization, their interest was preserving what they already had uh, as opposed to a fundamental reshaping of we need to reorient society as a whole. So a lot of times what actually white supremacy is is a conservation of the gains that they've already made. I see. And the more extreme versions, of course, you have the sort of separatist state, you have uh, the violence against <laughs> encroaching um, black Americans, uh, ethnic Americans, Jewish Americans, right? That, that's, there's the sort of violent outburst when it's seen as encroaching and things that right. they've already defined as theirs. Right. And, and why the turn to violence? I mean, that's an interesting question. And, you know, from my research on white nationalism, it doesn't always take a violent turn, right? That these are the more extreme versions where they see violence is the only remaining output. What's very interesting about white nationalists is when we think about white supremacy, if we take the sort of broader definition, white supremacy is reified in lots of different institutions, right? Uh, It's in our political system. It's in education, right? Whether we want to talk about it or not, it is there. What's interesting about white nationalists is they actually don't see the state as a particularly useful forum for them. So they so they see the state as actually hindering the kind of progress that they want to make that it's not that it's not extreme enough in their ideology. So they're very comfortable with using extrajudicial violence, setting up, you know, there's the the stories of like the separate training enclaves, right? right? right. That they've always been very comfortable operating outside the state and training in these kind of violent programs and you know, you've seen the kind of initiation videos that have been kind of popping up on the it's a way also to test masculinity, right? That that's an element of what's happening here with white supremacy and thinking about that kind of distinct white ethnic nationalism that they're putting forward. Gotcha, gotcha. And how how many people are we talking about? Is this a huge movement? Uh, how many in the United States? What are we thinking about internationally? Um, I think the real challenge is we actually really don't know. There's some scholars that could probably put it a bit more precise than I could, but one of the main problems is they're very, very secretive. And they're very good at appearing that there are more of them than there actually are. Most of their time they're spending on 4chan, 8chan, these kind of extreme channels. But they also have a lot of secret networks. And one of the big problems is that the FBI hasn't always considered them a particularly uh, dangerous social movement. In the way that they, the FBI felt more comfortable tracking black activists in the 60s, white nationalists have never really been tracked in the same way. So it's a bit more difficult for historians to pinpoint and activists now to see exactly how, how big or small this movement is. I think what is significant is this group is clearly very comfortable right now operating openly. Hmm. And this is not to say that it's any more or less powerful than it's been in years past or any bigger numerically, but it it they do have a degree of comfort 
um, operating and declaring their positions publicly, which has not always been the case. And, and uh, that's what's difficult for many of us to understand because it, it, we have made so much progress mm-hmm. uh, on the other side of the issue, right, right. in terms of um, civil rights, in mm-hmm. terms of uh, uh, women's rights, uh, yeah. gay and lesbian rights. So, so why do they feel more comfortable at a time when it seems less acceptable in many circles to have these right. views? And I think that's exactly what you touched on of we seem to have made so much progress. And I think that there's always going to be this revolution, right? If there's revolution for social change, more rights, there's always a counter-revolution, right? right? And so one of the big impetuses for this group was both the 1960s and the start of the Cold War. So the start of the Cold War offered a kind of unifying ideology against communism, Mm -hmm. which was very attractive for white supremacists, white nationalists, that that's a kind of political rhetoric that falls very in line with their sort of authoritarian tendencies already. So that gave them the kind of momentum to start really thinking about international, this sort of international Uh, anti-communist movement that was more extreme than anything the U.S. government felt comfortable doing. And so then you have in the 1960s gains in civil rights for black Americans in the United States. And then you also have decolonization, which is for the sort of international white nationalist white power movement. And again, it's important to think of nationalists not as specific territorial boundaries, right? right? They've always been global. They've always seen themselves you know, we have records as early as the 1930s of the Nazi state being mirrored off of U.S. segregation practices, mm-hmm. right? These ideas have always been in exchange. Um, and so to think that they're suddenly global in the 21st right. century is right. simply not true, right? That they're, they've always been particularly good at this. Uh, and in the same way, they, they've taken many of their tactics from 1960s decolonization and black power activists, right? Uh, Rockwell taking white power, right? They've always felt comfortable co-opting and learning from different social movements to try and gain ground. And so what happens in the 60s is they really start to feel like both at home and abroad, they're kind of losing across the board. Um, Particularly, I study South Africa, as Dr. Surrey mentioned, and South Africa and Rhodesia after Rhodesia collapses in 1978, um, South Africa really becomes the last bastion of white rule, and they really fixate on it. That ends in 1994 as a sort of marker of what a white state could look like. And then you see this outpouring of violence. Um, And I don't think those things are unrelated, right? The last fall of the only real, in air quotes, white supremacist inscribed government collapses and you see this upsurge in violence. So you have this sense, especially in the 60s, that these gains that I was talking about them trying to protect are starting to evaporate. The sort of global consensus that they had seen, whether it was through colonial empire, sort of informal colonization, that seems to be disappearing for them. And in the ways that sort of Southern segregationists or modern conservatives were able to adapt and perform sort of a respectable civil rights uh, positionality where it was not incredibly threatening to their white uh, um Base, but it wasn't overwhelmingly, right. you know, right. uh, inclusive. Uh, white power activists never tried to do that. And so they are very unique in the fact that they had to kind of segregate themselves. Um, no pun intended, but that they were pushed out of the acceptable sure. spectrum of conversation in the United States, particularly after the civil rights movement, where conservatives and liberals alike, both Republicans and Democrats, kind of sectioned off acceptable spe- like specters right. and parameters Th- of discussion. This famously happened in the Republican Party, where right. William F. Buckley and others said, we don't want to be associated with mm-hmm. the John Birchers. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, And that seems so different from where we are today. Yeah. And so especially during apartheid, you have both parties basically agreeing that the South African state, as it currently stands, needs to go, right? They need to release Nelson Mandela. We need to, they differed in approach, but there was a general consensus that something needed to be done. Now, if we want to parse through the uh, particular reasons why they thought that, right, it gets more complicated. I'm not going to say they're all altruistic um, or that they want racial equality, but we're uncomfortable with supporting the state as it stood. But you have Southern, not always Southern, but you have this old segregationist that's like, well, I'm not so comfortable with not supporting the South African state. You have that extreme clump. And so I think what starts to happen Right after the election, I mean, obviously, the I think one of the big turning points that a lot of scholars would identify is the election of Obama um, in the kind of uh, race hatred that these groups felt comfortable uh, espousing to him and what started to become acceptable. And why? It would have, you would have thought the opposite. We th- people were even talking about a post-racial society. Right. And I think, I think it's that post-racial, that post-racial society comes from our comfort in seeing linear notions of progress, right? That if you're not paying close enough attention, you don't see a lot of these groups. You don't, it's, that's right. you know, our country isn't comfortable identifying that one of the major, uh, the major terrorist, domestic terrorist force is white nationalists. So, sure. you know, it's always been that kind of discomfort with talking about specifically white power activists uh, in a way that felt far more comfortable attacking sort of identity, uh, identity activists, things like that. So, you know, white power is just another identity activist. It's just we feel less comfortable uh, talking about that. But one. why did Obama in particular, just, just having an African-American president? I think so. And he, you know, he has he has a black family, right? His his wife is a descendant of slaves that, you know, they represent a, a true, in some ways, notion of progress of this is a black man in a black family reaching the highest office. And so you have, I think, a sort of an impulse, especially in some sectors of the sort of white power movement, like there's going to be discomfort. Right. But I think what's different is. You watch members of the Republican Party feel very comfortable attack, you know, uh, indulging in conversations about his where he was born, right? Comfortable and thinking about, well, is he a Muslim? I don't know that they're they're playing to this sort of idea of is he legitimate? And so for white power activists and white nationalists, they kind of see that as like, oh, okay. There might be more cracks in this sort of barometer of what is acceptable behavior than we previously thought. And so then when you have someone like Donald Trump, who is very comfortable uh, uh, allowing for and playing to some of these ideas, the crack opens even wider. And so now they feel far more comfortable being in public spaces in a way that they weren't always. Gotcha. I have the numbers of these people, have, have they grown recently? Like, have we seen a spike in the numbers? And... Is it something that's passed down through family generations? That's a really good question, uh, Zach, because one of the things that you do see it is is it is fam- very family-oriented. And one of the reasons that you do see that is because of how insular they are. So especially I've seen a lot of instances in the South African case where if you have um, South African white nationalists, a lot of times they go to the same schools, they educate them in kind of separate enclaves, that it's already a very insular community. And when you do have somebody deviate, uh, it's, it's very shocking. So there's a famous, I can't remember his name, there's a famous son of a 
like KKK activist. Um, I think they're called Grand Wizards, but his grandfather is a very prominent member of a white power organization, and he defected. Um, and it was a it's a very big deal, and so it's very rare that these things happen, um, especially because they're so isolated, like I just mentioned. And then as for the growth, you know, it's really hard. I think also right now. It feels like there's more because there are more, right? There have been more violent attacks. There has been a great emboldening by white power activists. You know, if you're thinking about Pittsburgh, you're thinking about New Zealand, that they feel emboldened in a way that they hadn't seemed to in the past. But I don't necessarily know that that means that there's more of them. Right. Uh, it could also yeah. mean that they they feel this is their yeah. last moment. It's a right. last stand. Almost. Yes. And, you know, it's it's very scary, too, because you also have I think I think what's truly scary for me is not. There's always going to be people, especially if you look at the history of these groups, there's always going to be people that possess this kind of ideology. But what's scary is the so-called moderates feeling comfortable with allowing some of these forces in. And I think that's what's very scary is it's not just the people that are talking about these things and doing these things. It's the people that absolve them of that kind of violence. It's the the silence of the moderates. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's the saying, you know, oh, this is so horrible, but not actually doing anything about it. Yeah. Like members of the Senate. Yeah, not to not to name names. but <laughs> So we have a couple of uh, student questions yeah. here. Our first question is from Jaslyn Burke Cockburn. Uh, let's see what Jaslyn has to ask. Do you think white supremacy played a role in how America makes and or made foreign policy? Oh, uh, Jaslyn, right? That's a great question. I will answer 100% yes. This uh, is your book that yeah, you're Dr. writing. Yeah, Dr. Suri knows my opinions about this. Um, no, so I think I think it has fundamentally shaped the way uh, American foreign policy has been made, um, particularly in the case that I study. So I study uh, the 1980s, I study apartheid, and I study both the pro-apartheid movement, and I mean that quite literally, the people that were supporting apartheid and the anti-apartheid movement. Um, And what you see is not just the sort of uh, white radicalism that I'm talking about. And again, I'm using the term radical intentionally because they do possess a radical vision of the world that you know, deserves to be considered as its own kind of intellectual social force, not in a positive way, but as something to be considered as something that is very powerful and very dangerous. And so with that also comes a kind of disinterest on the part of, especially the Reagan administration, of really addressing apartheid. And so there's a bunch of different reasons why you could say that, but I would also be very inclined to say that Reagan didn't care particularly about black South Africans, right? That it maybe it wasn't as outwardly racist as the white nationalists that I'm talking about, where they're happy that apartheid is existing. But that disinterest, right, that we talked about at the beginning of what white supremacy is, is another component of that. Right. And in a certain way, uh, these groups enable the U.S. government at times mm-hmm. to associate itself with regimes that are doing horrible things right. to certain racial groups of their yeah. own. Right? And, you, and that's a great point. And you also have these kind of uh, paramilitary groups that they feel very comfortable arming. Right. Right. Yeah, especially in did. South America. Exactly. Yeah. And, in, and in Angola, right? Yeah. The United States actually hires uh, South African white supremacists mm-hmm. to uh, fight uh, communists in Angola, right. right? And, you know, the fact that the U.S. expressed discomfort from with the with the apartheid regime 
basically as soon as it was formally inscribed in 1948, right? They've always been uncomfortable, right. but have always continued to support it basically until political opinion reached a point where they didn't feel right. comfortable right. anymore. And this is a case certainly where social activism within the United States and other countries... Played a huge role. Right. Yeah. Perhaps one of the best examples of yeah. that. Yeah. I remember when I was in college, uh, yeah. this was a big issue. We yeah. were all protesting uh, yeah. investment in, in apartheid. Right. Yeah. The divestment movement. Yeah. yeah just as yeah. the divestment movement today focuses on fossil fuels. At that right. point, it focused on apartheid. Yeah. So uh, our last student question, I think, takes us into what I think I w- we'd like to discuss for the last mm-hmm. couple of quick minutes is really uh, where we go from here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Brooke uh, Branham has a question about this. Do you see white supremacy ever truly coming to an end, or is it too deeply rooted in American society? Um, Brooke, that's a great question, and I'm afraid that I do not have an optimistic answer for you. Um, I think it's always going to be here. Um, But I think that there is great power in acknowledging that reality, that this is something that we are always going to have to fight in whatever form it takes, uh, and that it is comfortable to, you know, I don't think that this uh, particularly violent episode of white nationalism is going to last forever. Uh, It tends to, if you look at it historically, it kind of appears, there's very violent bubbles, and then it kind of goes back down. But what happens is we kind of lull ourselves into a sense of complacency that, okay, it's done, right? That we've we fought it off, these people are crazy, and we won't have to deal with this again. We know that's not true. Right. Um, and I think that we have to be constantly vigilant about the kind of ideology that this includes is not just the kind of disgusting violence that we've seen over the last two years, but it is this broader definition of white supremacy. Um, and I think that's... You know, I don't know how you combat the kind of disgusting elements of white supremacy because, you know, you you run into the problem of there's two elements, right? There's kind of two forms of thought that people have when how do we combat white nationalism? It's one, get it out in the open and kind of debate it and make it seem invalid. The problem is, is it's very hard to debate those kinds of people. They're very set in what they think, sure. you know, and it, in some ways it's an exercise in futility and which people are we going to be asking to do that kind of emotional work is important. And so that there's problems with that approach, right, that it's not always effective. The second approach of isolating them is also not always effective, right? That's the probably the one I would lean more towards. But my own research shows that just isolating them doesn't make them right. go away. They just go somewhere else, it, right? It empowers them from right. what you've said. It empowers them. And so, you know, where do you go when the two options seem to be, we're trying to talk about it right now, and they just seem to be getting validation from different sectors. But but uh, wouldn't you say, and maybe this, this is uh, really the key question, wouldn't you say that, in fact, this moment offers a, a reason for optimism? Mm. Because the, the fact that we're having this discussion, yeah. that people can see this in front of them, and that the vast majority of particularly young people mm-hmm. who are pretty moderate on these issues, mm-hmm. uh, that they, in, in a sort of, in a civil rights sense, mm-hmm. following the model of civil rights movement, can see the ugliness mm-hmm. and turn away from it and yeah. act against it, yeah. that, that that mobilizing factor might be one of the best things that's happening in our world today. I think, I think that's true. Uh, I, think the, I think the thing that scares me particularly is how, is how much these white nationalist forces seem to have gained political support in a way that it makes me deeply uncomfortable, right? If you think about the Trump administration, um, if you think about 
if you think about Brazil, if you think about, you know, what almost happened in France, what's happening in Germany, right, that these forces are starting to gain political support in ways that is very different than anything that we've really seen for a very long time. I think that's where my sort of notes of caution are. But, I mean, one of the great things that we really saw is the response of the New Zealand government to what happened in Christchurch. You know, um, the kind of outpouring of support both from people and politicians and coming up with tangible solutions. Like, those are the things that are best about policy, right? Those are the things that we love to see. And so I am more optimistic about what I've seen in other places than in our own country right now. Um, But like you said, I think we're at a particular kind of crisis point, and I think it could go either way. Um, But I think it's important that even if it does go away, we can't forget that this happened, right. especially right. in our lifetime. It's such a formative part of, especially for our students, you know, this is these are the formative college experiences that shape a lot of Absolutely. your political leanings. Absolutely. And so it's important to think about the kind of violence, even if it disappears, that you saw and your friends who are black, who are Jewish, who are Latina, who they were that they feared for good right. reason. It's important to remember those things. Right. And, and I think one of the core missions of for those of us who care about democracy is making sure we're aware and making sure we're active yeah. uh, around these issues. Yeah. And and this is a, a wonderful time to remind yeah. ourselves of that. Yeah and to take more action on behalf of these issues. Uh, You've given us, Augusta, so much historical background, uh, and I think uh, motivation to really think and act around these issues. And, and that's the best kind of history. So uh, thank you, Augusta. Yeah, yeah. And, and Zachary, I think your poem uh, really captures how personal this is and how it's a personal mission. If we care about democracy, uh, we have to all personally be involved in, in this struggle, uh, probably an endless struggle. Uh, against some of the worst elements uh, of our society, uh, some of the worst attitudes. Thank you for joining us uh, for this really um, interesting uh, episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.